They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. In Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. All right, wow, what an intro. Uh, thanks for the intro, Jake. Back in your box now. Don't yep. say another word or else it'll be in violation of your contract. Yep, shout out Jake Brend for uh, writing and performing every instrument in that intro. Really impressed. Really impressed with his uh, diverse abilities. Yeah, he went above and beyond. For sure, for sure, for sure. We're very happy with it. <clears throat> All right, so I'm really excited about this uh, episode. Wait, we, haven't, we haven't bantered at all. That, that was the banter. What? What? The thing about Jake? Yeah, we bantered about Jake for a bit, and now, now we're getting into it. Oh, wow. I didn't even get a chance to come up with a musical intro to the section. No. I'll get, I'll get what? Well, all right. Let, now it's time to, for the... Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we can't, we can't have a musical introduction to bantering because we've got no. a musical intro. And then I'm saying talking. that we have a musical intro to the main segment, like, time oh. for the main event. There you go. Yeah, okay, that was pretty good. All right. But today we're we're talking about 12 Angry Men. I'm pretty excited. This is one of my favorite movies. I know it's one of your favorites as well. Uh yeah. I mean, it's not on my top 5, but it's a it's a great movie. Okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I know you like it a lot. Um, I do. I do. I like this movie a, an excessive amount. Yeah, and I just read a whole book about this movie, so I'm just bursting with knowledge. Yeah, Nathan's been do- Nathan took the research uh, duties this time. Yep, yep. So, uh, quick, quick intro for anyone who hasn't seen the movie: Twelve Angry Men, 1957 film, the first movie by Sidney Lumet. It was great director. If anyone's looking for directorial recommendations, Sidney Lumet's got more than just this as you know, absolute smash hits as far as I'm concerned. For sure. Uh, It was based on a TV movie written by Reginald Rose, who also wrote this film adaptation. And it basically just follows 12 jurors as they deliberate on a murder case that appears at the beginning of the movie to be open and shut. And then over the course of the film, they kind of dive into just other things that they think need to be brought to light and the minutia uh, of testimony. Yeah. So it was nominated for three Academy Awards, best director, best adapted screenplay, best picture. It lost all of them, but it was honestly kind of amazing that they even got nominated because it was made for like nothing. And it was financed almost exclusively by Henry Fonda. And it didn't do very well at the box office. No, it did not. Its legacy has very much been determined by people coming back to it. And I think it is the movie that has had the largest jump in placement since the original Sight and Sound film poll, which is uh, 
I think it's every decade they interview, they get the best movies from critics, directors, and actors. Basically, what do you think is the top movie? And 12 Angry Men was not in the list at all when it started and is now, I think, in like the top 20. Good so, job. It's definitely been a movie that's um, experienced a lot of growth in terms of its legacy. But let's let's jump in. I I did all this intro. Elliot, what are what are your thoughts? Initial thoughts. What what makes this movie good? All right. So I actually rewatched this movie like last night because I couldn't sleep, and also, well, I can never sleep, and also because uh, <laughs> this isn't this isn't the therapy session, and also because we had to rewatch it for this. And I honestly was impressed at how well it's held up because for me when I watch movies my initial impressions are typically better than what I will conclude later on after I rewatch it this, mm-hmm. but this is my third time rewatching uh 12 angry men and I think it's only gotten better uh so it all takes place in one room with the same characters throughout the entire thing. So obviously this movie was always going to live and die by the strength of its characters and its performances. And I think that there's not, there's not a weak link in the entire chain. I mean, they all have their own contributions and they're, they're so distinctly written with their different motivations and perspectives on the case. And it never feels like any of them are awkwardly jammed in to have some moment of characterization that will explain how they uh, vote one way or another on the verdict later on. It's all very natural, the way their interactions bring out their different backgrounds. And so like the guy who ends up being the main sort of, not really antagonist, but the guy who's most gung-ho about ensuring that the kid is found guilty at the beginning he's actually like very restrained he doesn't he doesn't sound like the kind of i don't know crazed really angry man that he is by the end uh but he the the racist guy is the guy who seems the most gung-ho to put him in the chair then this guy the, the father uh he's fairly like you know, this is just this is just something that's happened. It's, it's only as it goes along as his own history sort of comes into play with his own son that he really starts to get more and more agitated. And there's a lot of stuff like that, but uh, I already feel like I've been talking too long. But I'll say that the big thing about this movie that makes it so good for me is the characters and the characterization. Yeah. Well, I think. The thing that really struck me, I've only seen it twice, so I rewatched it for the podcast, and then the first time I watched it with you. The thing that really struck me is just how good the cinematography in this thing is, and how good like the technical aspects, that if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to be making a movie set in one room, you're like, okay, well, this is going to look pretty blasé, you know, how interesting can you keep it? But they consistently make every shot interesting like they consistently found new interesting angles to shoot just one guy talking so i felt like it was never like oh here's the same shot again 
but it's just later in the movie and now a new guy's talking. Instead, it was a different angle, a different perspective, which I think represents kind of what you said. What's so great about the movie is each of these people bringing their own perspective, their own lives into the jury room. And then what's so fascinating about the movie is watching these bleed into the case, is watching each person's own belief in reason, in, you know, racism, in, you know, their own experience that they've had with their son bleed into, but not in some super overhanded way that he's beating you over the head. Like, oh, do you see this guy? And this is his motivation. Instead, it's just very natural. It's just thrown in. And it's just, as it goes along, you see more and more of it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. People sort of throw around the term like tightly plotted, you know, quite a bit. And I feel like it's sort of overused in that it doesn't always mean that you keep on using that phrase. I don't think I don't think it means what you think it means. But here I think Good that it definitely applies because everything is sort of it's all building towards the same thing, towards these moments of like revelation or big uh, blowouts among the jurors uh, for it sort of it, there's an ebb and flow to it where there are these big fights between everyone and then there are quieter moments as different characters sort of interact with each other and this movie has some of the best reveals that I think I, I <laughs> that I think I've ever seen like last night when I was watching it and they were arguing about the old man's testimony and the one guy uh, gets up in Henry Fonda's face and he's like, what are you talking about yet? What are you talking about the, the old man knowing this or that? He was so confused. How could, how could he be positive about anything he's ever seen? And they, he just has this moment of realization of what he said. And oh my gosh, I was just like cheering because it's so good. Well, I vividly remember the first time we watched this, when the guy started sweating, you jumped out of your chair and yelled, Oh my gosh, he's sweating. I don't remember doing that. You did. It was, I just, it was funny because you were kind of against us watching that movie because we were home alone and I was like, oh, I've heard this is really good. And you're like, oh, whatever. It'll probably be mediocre. And then at that moment, I was like, oh, he's really into this. Wow, I don't remember that at all. You you come off suspiciously well in that telling. Well, I don't know. I'm a bit of a movie fan. So, I mean, it took you a bit longer to come around. But I think the other, I mean, you already said it with how tightly plotted. I mean, this screenplay is incredible. I, it's And Reginald Rose, the man who wrote it, and the man who the book that I read about, it was primarily about, he was really stunning in the way he was able to just be so focused and write such human characters in such short periods of time that he really understood exactly what it was that made each of them interesting and compelling and continue to this day like I think people use the movie and the script for the movie as examples of a million different sociological things like interpersonal dynamics, group dynamics, how to, you know, convince people in an argument that each member who flips over the course of the film has a different reason for flipping. 
and has a, you know, and some of them in like the middle, their reason for flipping is simply they don't have a backbone and they're just going to go with whatever, you know, the flow is. But it makes it interesting because there's people like that who, you know. Yeah. I mean, the one guy with Dora, I mean, he all but admits that he changes his boat just because he's getting bored and he wants to go home. Yeah. Which I think is another really interesting thing that shows up a lot in the movie especially in like the opening that the judge just seems so like he doesn't care that he's like this is whatever and that henry fonda's character is the only one who's kind of like hey like this is serious this is someone's life like someone could live or die and so we we at the very least need to put in some effort here and think about this yeah, that's pretty much what I was going to say. At the beginning, he doesn't even think necessarily that he's not guilty. He's just like, there's a human life at stake here. It's not something that we can just say, you know, all righty then, let's let's get out of here. It's, it's more important than that. It deserves more than that. And that's what I think, uh, for some reason on the Wikipedia page for this movie, there's a section devoted to themes and all of the themes, it's fairly short, but the themes are mostly about standing up to mob mentality or something. But I also think that there's a strong theme about the value of, of human life, that there's a life in play here and that demands more of a more consideration than just, you know, let's accept the facts as we've seen them. Yeah. Well, I think it's not just a very humanistic film in the sense that it has a very compassionate outlook for the person who is on trial, but almost everyone in the film receives a fairly compassionate lens. I think even somewhat the villain, not some, I don't think the racist guy ever really gets much of a compassionate lens. Yeah, he... He, he ends up just he ends up changing his vote just because like everyone realizes what a jerk face he is and nobody wants yeah. to talk to him anymore. Yeah, but like every time they mention someone in the who was in the trial, like the witnesses or the prosecutor or the defendant, it's in a very compassionate way that they're like, oh, this old guy, like this is the only time he's mattered. Like he really wanted to come to this trial and be important, which is not you know, it's not necessary, but I think it says a lot about the kind of person Reginald Rose, Reginald Rose was, that he writes with such an incredible amount of compassion for every person sort of in the trial, and that he understands that not just this random kid, but they all deserve some level of, which is why in his original endings, juror number three would like there was a moment of like tension in original endings where juror number three would like pick up the knife and walk towards Henry Fonda as if he was going to like stab him or something, but he didn't like it ending that way. And so he changed it to the ending that we have, which is Fonda, you know, get bringing him his jacket and this moment of like, you had a rough couple, you know, you had a rough hour here, but it's okay. You're going to you know, move forward and be all right. Yeah, I will say if there's one thing that I could level at this movie as a criticism, and it's like barely a criticism because it's just that the 
conclusion or not every uh, sort of reveal about the case or its inner workings that gets more and more people to come to the light side or whatever, not all of them work as well as the other ones. Mm. So like the revelation about the woman wearing glasses and uh, that calling into question her eyewitness testimony the way they figure it out is just because the one guy takes off his glasses, he's got indents on the sides of his yeah. nose, and people start realizing that they had seen that. And, you know, that's sort of, that feels a little more like just sort of the arbitrary declaration of the screenwriter, you know, because mm. we never saw it. There was never anything that we could have, there was, it seems less earned, basically, sure. than the other one. It, do, it doesn't seem forced or anything. It's not bad by any stretch of the imagination. It's just when you compare it to the rest of the uh, of the movie, it doesn't hold up to the same standard. Yeah. Well, and then speaking of that, I kind of looked for some negative reviews, and it seems like most of the negative reviews kind of take issue with the realism of the film and sort of what you're talking about but to a much higher degree, because this is, uh, we were talking before this, before we started recording, uh, what the jurors did here was illegal, in fact. Yeah, yeah <laughs> if, the, if the jury deliberations were made public, the prosecutor would have no trouble in having a mistrial declared and having pretty much the whole thing thrown out. Which I think is, you know, bad if you're coming at the movie exclusively at a, you know, plot hole, super critical, everything has to be so realistic. But I think it's almost addressed in the film when they're talking about the defendant, the defendant's lawyer, and they're like, he did a really shoddy job. Like, he did a poor job. And so I think for as much as the movie kind of romanticizes the American justice system in some sense with the one guy giving a whole speech about how neat a jury system is, which is neat, I think. At the same time, there's like this sense of, you know, if you genuinely were on a jury where this trial happened, the guy was is guilty. The guy's going to get found guilty and he's going to die. And so mm-hmm. I think that even more leans into the humanistic ideas of the film that it's like, look, if something is as important as a human life is on stake, is at stake, we really got to put some effort into this. We really got to try. Can you think of any other things you'd like to highlight from the film? Anything else you think it does really well or? Uh, Well, literally every review that I've seen of this movie or read of this movie points out how at the beginning, the camera, mostly it focuses on wide angle shots to include everyone but as the move and it and it's set uh pretty high up so it feels like you're an outsider but as the movie goes on the camera gets tighter and tighter in uh and it sort it focuses more on the on two people you know having clashes or arguments and so it and it gets lower and lower until by the end i think uh the last like I don't know, maybe 20 or so minutes, most of the shots are actually looking up. And so it makes it feel more like uh, the camera is placed, well, it is placed right in there in the thick of the action, which vicariously 
makes the audience feel more like they're inside what's going on. That's very clever. And it is very indicative of Sidney Lumet's uh, eye for for cinematography. Yeah. Well, he he came from exclusively directing TV things before this film. And so he was over the moon to finally be able to like actually set, set up shots because usually what he would have to do with live productions is he would just have to have a general idea. But for the most part, he had to be like, you know, like the office or friends or Seinfeld where it's, you know, a set. And so most of the shots are outside the set. But then with this, he was finally able to put the camera in the set because he didn't have to worry about like, oh, is it going to be in the shot when I you know, cut to camera B? And so he was really excited and he got a really fantastic cinematographer who did work on, I think, On the Waterfront was his movie that he had done previously. I want to say he's Boris Kaufman, but I don't. Don't hold me to that. Well, I think that we've, I mean... Pretty much everything there is to gush about, we've gushed about in some way or another. I mean, we haven't talked a whole lot about performances, but they're all great. Henry Fonda especially uh, does a really good job. And also, this time I found Foreman. He's the guy who's sort of like, Mm. he's juror number nine, and he's like running the show sort of, or at least he has the appearance of running the show. He's organizing things. I thought that he did a really great job. I mean, they all did, to be honest, but those are the yeah. two standouts for me. Yeah, they all do fantastic. And I think this is, I mean, Henry Fonda, this is one of his career defining roles that he's, you know, like known as or known for. So, yeah, the next, I would uh, love to. They do, they sometimes do plays of this movie. Uh, it's one of the movies that people have a tendency to make into plays. Like, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is apparently a play, has several theater at, theatrical at, adaptations. Uh, but they do plays of this a lot, and I've always sort of my acting dream would be to be would be to play uh, in this uh, this well this play because I think it's great and I think it would be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's just throwing that out there in case any <laughs> directors that, yeah. are doing it. <laughs> if there's any directors out there, you know, uh, <laughs> I I am totally totally willing to play in Twelve Angry Men. Make it Twelve Angry People. You know, I don't care. Throw some women in yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, the, it is obviously these days. It is usually uh, gender gender neutral cast. Yeah. And I think we've talked before about what this movie would be like if it was made today, because I think this is one of those movies that's just going to be endlessly relevant. Uh, And I think that probably it would not be 12 angry men if it was made today. And there's not, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If they were to remake it, that (laughs) sounded really bad. Like, Oh, I don't think there's anything wrong with women in the justice system. You know, I'm a bit of a feminist. Well, it's funny you say that because even when, they made the movie the odds of there being an all-male jury were like one in a thousand so like even when it was made he just made it all men just because he thought it made the most sense with you know stereotypes and how men typically are portrayed that they would get 
you know, as angry as he needed them to get at points in the film. But there have been, re- I mean, there's remakes in other languages. The guy who made The Exorcist made a remake in the 90s that's supposed to be really good that I want to see. So I, I agree. It can just be endless. Yeah, movie. another, another uh, not great thing about this movie sort of is when they are talking about the woman who testifies. They're like, "Oh man, she she's not very good looking." You know, she's try, she's clearly trying really hard to look younger. You know, she's so vain and vapid. And I'm like, "Oh yeah, all right, <laughs> 1950s." Well, I think they still I think they still have some lines where they're like, oh, it's sort of sort of the same thing as the old guy who comes in to testify that it's people trying to feel, you know, like they want to feel in a sense that they want to feel important. They want to feel pretty. That's why I exaggerate my testimony whenever I'm whenever I'm called upon. Under oath. Like, yeah, I'm just I just want to I just want to come off as very pretty here. Okay. <laughs> Sure. Oh, all right. Well then, um, let's go to score. I'll, I'll go first. This is, um, it's a 10. I think it's a 10. I think this is about a perfect encapsulation of what makes movies so amazing. I, since I first watched this, the final shot of the guy holding the ripped up picture of his son is just incredible. I mean, it's his whole his whole character is right there in the shot. And anyone who watched the movie and was, you know, not on their phone the entire time and was like thinking about it at least a little can see so easily what is happening right there. And I think that's the beautiful thing about movies is that they can put you and show you such an incredible human thing and make it accessible to anyone that anyone can watch it and be like, wow, that was, and I think given how the legacy of this film, people do still do that, still feel this way about this movie. And so it's a 10. I I love this movie. Yeah. So what's happened there is Nathan has said that if you don't see that, then you are an idiot. (laughs) I just, I would question how close, how much you were paying attention to the movie. Wow. Pretty obvious. All right, fine. If you have complaints, feel free to send them to our editor, Jake Brand. He's the guy you send all complaints to. Just text him. You all have his number. Just do that. Oh, man. What does what does Andy Dufresne say about uh, his fictitious money launderer in uh, Shawshank? He's like, he's the man with all the money. He's the man you want to talk to. Jake is the man with all of the script power. He writes these scripts. So yeah, <laughs> these are all scripted. It's all scripted, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I'm I'm right there with you. I'm I'm giving this an A plus because I refuse to use uh, numbers. <laughs> all right, perfect. I know I did I did say two things that I don't love about this movie, but for me, an A plus uh, or a perfect score. I don't know. It seems weird to say. <laughs> It doesn't mean that it's perfect. It it means that I think it's as close to perfect as it's going to come. Yeah. All right. Well, then that that means we're going into our final section. You know what? You love it. Uh, recommendations. Yeah. Hit it. Uh, do you have a, I have my recommendation ready to go if you want me to start? Yeah. My recommendation is pretty basic ish. Well, I don't know. 
So my recommendation, if you liked this movie, uh, is I almost forgot it just right there is just mercy, which is, I believe a 2016 movie, uh, starring Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx about this lawyer trying to overturn a, an egregiously wrong death sentence that's been given to Jamie Foxx's character. It is based on a true story and it has a lot of the, a lot of similar themes to this movie. Uh, at least according to the, the themes, according to Wikipedia, of standing up to mob mentality because Jamie Foxx, you may not know this, is black. Uh, and the crime that this guy was accused of committing was against a white woman. And it's in like it's in the deep south. I think it I think it's in Alabama. Don't quote me on that. But the entire town is like really upset that he's that they're working so hard to try to get this overturned uh and it's an absolute travesty of justice you know it it aggravates me to this day when i watch it but it is it it does have the the same sort of ideas are at play and it's in a real world situation so that's my recommendation mm, okay uh my recommendation also could be a little basic i guess uh mine was the trial of the chicago 7 uh, which came out two years ago, I think. Aaron Sorkin, writing and directing. And um, it's just a similar idea. It's a trial. It's got a lot of fantastic setup and payoff. It's Sorkin, so it's a lot of fantastic dialogue and writing. And if you're looking for another trial movie, like we've been talking about, with these same ideas of you know, what people deserve and what people should get, under a justice system, I, you know, I think you'd be hard pressed to find one that's as well done as the trial of the Chicago seven, or you could just rewatch 12 angry men too. either way. 12 angry men, I think uh, is actually a better movie than trial of the Chicago seven. All right. Well, yeah. Okay. I agree. Uh, I think that's, that's pretty much all we have. So yep. uh, it's time help. to, it's time to wrap it up. It's time to look back on all of the all of the analyses that we've analyzed all of the critiques that we've critiqued it's time to move forward as more conscientious holistic consumers of cinema that's the point that is the point of this podcast to make wow. make people better consumers of this art form that we all love so much. I I just thought it was because you like talking to me. So that yeah. is absolutely not the case. <laughs> if I if I were to make a podcast with somebody I like talking to, I would not make a podcast. <laughs> okay, all right. Good good news for all of Elliot's friends yeah, out there. Yeah, I just I just totally insulted everyone I know. I, I apologize. All right, all right. All right, that's enough. We're, we're signing off there.